0: Is an Odyssey original.
1: This is KNX in depth. I'm Brian Ping in for Mike Simpson, and I'm Charles Feldman. Well, some thought she would; many hoped she wouldn't, and today she did. Nancy Pelosi is in Taiwan right now, and it is much angering the Chinese, which, in fact, just a few minutes ago, called for the U.S. ambassador in Beijing to to come forward and talk to them, so they are worried about all the consequences, should we be? The White House wasn't exactly supportive of the trip, so we'll look into whether dismissing President Biden's concerns ends up hurting him. And the leader of al-Qaeda has been killed by a U.S. drone strike, so what happens now to that organization after his death? Back at home, Governor
2: Newsom and L.A. County both declare an emergency over monkeypox. It's because of rising cases. We go in-depth into whether that will help stop the spread. Credit card debt is growing at a rapid pace across the country. We look into what that means for the economy. Author Stephen King testifies against two major publishing companies at an antitrust trial, saying a merger could hurt him and your favorite writers. In a new study, you might have you thinking twice about eating frozen pizzas and other similar foods. They might be hurting your brain.
1: I actually think even once about eating frozen pizza. I don't have to think twice. Yeah, I'm, Once it, is enough.
2: It's not too bad. I, I kind of like it, but that, that
1: probably explains some things. <laughs> we start, though, with Nancy Pelosi in Taiwan. Matthew Schmidt is a professor of national security, international affairs, and political science at the University of New Haven. He's worked with the Senate and House Armed Services Committee, as well as members of Congress as a consultant on strategic planning. Matthew, thanks for being with us. So this is, uh, I suppose, I suppose one way of of looking at uh, Pelosi's trip is with Russia having invaded Ukraine. Perhaps she feels that this is the perfect time for her to be in Taiwan as a way of, of sort of saying to the Chinese, don't you dare. But I guess the other way of looking at it is why poke your finger into a tiger? Uh,
3: yeah. So my view here is that uh, this is all risk and, and no upside. I understand why she wants to do it and support Taiwan uh, and, and, you know, stand firm on, uh, on what's going on in Hong Kong and uh, with the Uyghur minorities and, and push back on China. But she doesn't have to do it today. She could do it any time from now. Those other issues are long standing. Uh, doing it today opens up the possibility that China retaliates by starting to sell weapons to Russia, which we agreed to not do just a few weeks ago. So so I think that's a big risk for us because that's our number one foreign policy priority right now.
2: What went into the decision making process for her to go in the first place? Like you said, it's it, the uh, reward may not uh, outweigh the risk here. So uh, how did that weigh into the discussions or did it or what does she stand to gain?
3: The truth is, I don't really understand her timing for it. Um, We knew basically the entire national security uh, community in the White House was against her doing this. Biden looked bad. It makes him look weak because he's a Democratic president. She's the Democratic Speaker of the House. And she's not doing what everybody knows, uh, you know, he wants her to do. Now, she's done it. And the White House has come out, right? John Kirby has come out and has backed her on it publicly, which he has to. But anybody who understands American politics understands that this was a sort of thumb in the face of the White
1: House. I mean, is it possible, and we raised this question yesterday, but is it possible that, you know, things with Washington often are not what they appear to be? Uh, Could it be that despite uh, all the the leaked information that the president wasn't really happy with her going and the president even saying publicly that the military wasn't uh, happy with her going, that perhaps – you know maybe he kind of wanted her to go, but it puts some distance between what she's doing and the official policy of the United states
3: Well, I think that's possible right the The advantage of the Speaker of the House going banking officials she's second in line presidency behind the vice president, and she can do this, and in the American system, the president can basically signal behind the scenes, "Hey, this is not my policy, but wink, wink right clearly the u s government also supports what she's saying, so he can sort of have his cake and and eat it too in this case, and, and have this kind of deniability. I think that's what they're doing right now publicly, but privately, uh, my sense is close to the coming of this trip.
2: So uh, Beijing promises some sort of retaliation, probably means they're going to fire some rockets into the ocean. Uh, how concerned should we be about uh, what might happen on their end in the next couple of days?
3: So what it looks like happened uh, last night before she arrived, and today is that basically the Chinese towed up to what's called the, the medium line, which is the, the, the line of demarcation halfway between Taiwan and mainland China. They basically flew the jets up there. They touched the nose of the line in the sky and turned around. Um, they were engaged in what they called, uh, you know, tar was ominous, but really what it meant was sort of standard sizes. Um, and then of course they called, as you just heard, they called the, the ambassador in. So I think trying to understand that it doesn't want to risk this either and so it's going to it's going to you know put a lot of firecrackers up in the sky but no real bombs or anything else my worry is what happens with arms to you to, and what happens down the line in terms of China increasing their cyber presence and cyber attacks in the U.S. and cyber espionage and these kinds of things as basically saying okay Right. The the, the the cover is off here. We know that the U.S. is now absolutely committed to defending Taiwan in a way that we disagree
2: with. Professor Matthew so, Schmidt, uh, expert of
1: international affairs at the University of New Haven. Professor, thanks. As we mentioned before, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan was not exactly endorsed by the White House. It didn't condemn her trip, but wasn't terribly thrilled either. At least that's what they said publicly. So what does this do to relations between the Speaker and the President? Susan Page was the USA Today, Washington Bureau Chief, author of Madam Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. Susan, thanks for being with us.
4: Um, hey, it's great to be with you again.
1: So, uh, you know, as I said, the the President, the White House made it at least publicly clear, that he was not in favor of her trip. He he publicly did say that the military was against it. She ends up going anyway. The president, of course, not doing very well in the polls. Does it make him, as the the head in, of the Democratic Party, in
4: effect, look weak? Well, I think not to those who have ever met Nancy Pelosi. I mean, the idea yeah. that uh, she would be afraid or would uh, change her mind about
1: Okay, I think Susan, are you there? No. Okay, so we're going to try to get Susan Page back with us. It's just it's, one a, it's an those interesting question. Yeah, in <laughs> one of those days, one it's one those an days.
2: interesting question for sure because you got to wonder about what sort of communication, if there was any, uh, between the speaker and the president before she decided to go yeah. do this. Because you know this is a party that is you know up against the wall right now ahead of November, and they've got to put forth a united front.
1: Right, and 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 but uh, we're going to hold that thought because Susan is back with us. Susan, you're there.
4: Hi, I'm um, back. Did, I'm did you hear that point it's, we it's were the, uh, discussing the miracle, there? It's
1: the miracle of electronics. <laughs> you know, Sometimes it works and sometimes it, it doesn't work so much. Uh, but uh, you were interrupted. Uh, do you remember what the question was?
4: <laughs> well, we were talking about Nancy Pelosi and presidents. Of right. course, she stands up to Republican presidents, but she's got a long history of standing up to Democratic presidents as well. Just ask Bill Clinton. She stood up to him on the issue of China, too. You know, this may be perplexing to Chinese, the Chinese government, uh, unfamiliar with the independence of our legislature here. But I think not a surprise to American political figures, uh, because this is an issue she has been very outspoken on almost from the day that she arrived here in Washington.
2: But does she care about the repercussions here at home as far as uh, making the Democrats look like they don't have their act together when they're facing a very important midterm election?
4: So, you know, I, uh, I think that that has not been a big concern of hers on this. I think her bigger concern has been standing up for a democratic ally, uh, with whom we have a long relationship. Um, and I think that's the point of this. There are a lot of things that are going to affect the midterm elections, uh, gas prices, food prices, uh, you know, what happens on access to abortion. I think the view here would be that this trip to Taiwan is not one of the things that's going to be a Big important issue in November.
1: You know, we raised this question in our last segment, but you know, you know your way around Washington, so I'll raise it with you as well. Is is it possible that uh, this isn't what it appears to be? In the sense that uh, you know, the the president gets his cake and eats it too. He publicly makes it known that he's not thrilled that she goes. She says, in effect, "I'm going anyway." She does. Uh, But maybe there was a wink and a nod on the part of the president because it allows the Speaker of the House to make the statement that maybe he can't make.
4: You know, I think we should distinguish between Biden and his administration, because you may remember President Biden three times since he moved into the White House has gone Too far in talking about U.S. willingness Mm -hmm. to defend Taiwan against a Chinese military attack. The White House aides would then go out and try to walk it back, saying there'd been no change in policy. So I think Biden is not so far from Nancy Pelosi's policy on this. But you talk to people in his administration, they are very concerned about some of the repercussions. And the number one repercussion they're worried about is whether China will begin to send arms to Russia in the battle against Ukraine, which is a foreign policy issue that's now dominating. A lot of their time.
2: What does she hope to get out of all this, as far as real change or improving anyone's lives there on in uh, Taiwan, or for the cause of democracy around the world, and not just for personal legacy?
4: Well, there, you know, there, China has taken a more aggressive stance toward Taiwan recently, raising concerns that the equilibrium there is about to shift. And I think her view is, her going there making this statement the first the highest ranking official to go since Newt kingrich in 1997 that that sends a statement that may be helpful to taiwan in trying to maintain its its uh, standing as a democratic ruled place that is also recognized as part of one china uh, how so complicated... to make it more assertive uh, well no to, to make him... no to make the 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 apparent cost to china higher if they attack taiwan
1: so so she's she's there now, she then continues the rest of her her trip uh through that region and, and then returns um in your mind, is there a sort of a timetable when the Chinese, if they're going to act? Are more likely to. I mean, they've already uh, asked, uh, you know, for the ambass- U.S. ambassador to, to come uh, over to to uh, to them in Beijing. Uh, I I, sup- I suspect for addressing down. But uh, is this the kind of thing that a country like China kind of puts away in the back burner and waits for the opportune time to strike back, or does it do something or needs to do something immediately to show that it's not going to be pushed around by the U.S. Speaker of the House?
4: Well, that's a, that is question number one. Uh, and will they take offense at this? And there'll be some actions, some consequences, either while she's in Taiwan or after she has, she has left Taiwan. Uh, and, you know, we have heard a lot of rhetoric today. We, the American ambassador called in, in Beijing. The U.S., the Chinese ambassador, to the United States spoke out. We heard very tough rhetoric, uh, from other Chinese officials saying that if you play with FUD, that, President Xi told, Uh, President Biden, when they spoke on the phone last week, that, uh, that if you play with fire, you'll get burned. So there could be consequences. But we don't know whether there'll be rhetorical consequences, but not ones that rise to, say, some kind of military threat.
2: Susan Page, USA Today Washington Bureau Chief, author of Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. Susan, thanks. Right now, President Biden announced yesterday that a drone strike killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri at a safe house in Kabul, Afghanistan. This comes nearly 21 years after the 9-11 attacks in which he played a significant role. So what happens to al-Qaeda now? Javed Ali is a former senior director for counterterrorism at the National Security Council, and he also served as counsel at the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. First off, Javed, I want to ask you, what had al-Qaeda been up to recently, really over the last few years, because... They had kind of faded from the headlines. The world is concerned now with, with Russia, with China, with uh, big state actors. And al-Qaeda had sort of faded from the headlines. And I don't know, what, what sort of work had they done behind the scenes? Uh, even in the, the, the world of Islamic extremism, ISIS had grabbed a lot of the attention. What had uh, al-Zawahiri, if anything, been up to uh, before this strike?
0: So, gentlemen, good to be with you on the program. And excellent question about uh, the status of al-Qaeda over the past decade plus and Ayman al-Zawahiri's leadership of, of the organization. So al-Qaeda is definitely a different organization in the aftermath of Osama bin Laden's death, and uh, Zawahiri was appointed the successor after that. And he was a very different person than Osama bin Laden to more cerebral, more quiet, um, more of an intellectual, although he had serious jihadist credentials too. And he didn't have the same charisma and persona that bin Laden did. So in the aftermath of, of bin Laden's death, uh, going back to 2011, uh, and then with the rise of ISIS, that was certainly uh, two major challenges he had to confront. And it all it looks like who was trying to quietly lead the organization and a number of affiliated groups around the world into a new era in which Al Qaeda was no longer the dominant brand or organization in this broad global jihadist movement. And there were some setbacks that uh, the organization faced, but also some successes, not from Al Qaeda itself as that that core organization that emerged in Afghanistan in the late 80s, but more through the, the work of the affiliate. So now, looking forward, it'll be really interesting to see who gets named as the successor to al Will it come from that small group of Afghanistan veterans from the, the late 80s? Will it come from
1: one of the affiliated
0: groups? And I don't think we know the answers yet on that front.
1: And does it really matter, though, in the end? Because isn't the bigger threat globally from like-minded people who have, uh, uh, you know, the same basic feelings and the same basic ideology, perhaps, as al-Qaeda, maybe even as ISIS, as opposed to uh, this, you know, one organization that people keep thinking of as, as being sort of, I don't know, like, like some big, big company that can dictate policy all over the world? It really can't. Well, this is one of the challenges in counterterrorism, but certainly with uh, counterterrorism
0: versus the uh, the global jihadist movement, you have the threats from the organized, structured groups, as you just mentioned. And those are the types of threats that look like a 9-11 or a Paris or a Mumbai. I mean, the spectacular attacks that grab the world's attention and, and hundreds, if not thousands of people get killed, unfortunately, in those. But on the other hand, other side of the spectrum Uh, or the threat spectrum, you have inspired attacks based on the ideology and the narratives that these groups can promote via social media and traditional media and and other types of platforms. And we've seen an equally large number of inspired attacks, either from Al-Qaeda or ISIS, from people of no affiliation to either of those organizations, have never traveled overseas, but in their home countries, to even include here in the U.S., we have seen people try to conduct attacks or conduct attacks on behalf of of these types of groups so that there is still going to be a threat from that end of the of the spectrum as well.
2: Javad Ali, former senior director for counterterrorism
1: at the National Security Council. Java, thank you. This is KNX In-Depth, Brian Ping, in for Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman.
2: Governor Newsom has issued an emergency declaration because of the rising number of monkeypox cases in California. An emergency declaration was declared here in Los Angeles County,
1: too. And the goal is to better put resources in place to try to stop the outbreak from spreading, but is it going to work? Dr. Peter Katona, longtime uh, clinical professor of medicine in infectious diseases at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine, friend of the show. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. Thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit about uh, because there is some confusion, I think, out there, and and there aren't uh, as many as yet uh, vaccines available. Who does need to get vaccinated? Who doesn't need to get vaccinated?
5: Well, it's an exposure issue. Uh, For one thing, uh, about 97% of cases are in men who have sex with men. So people who are sexually active in that category are going to be high on the list of vaccine candidates. Uh, people who take care of these people in the hospital are, are candidates. So anybody who has contact with a person who might have lesions or their soiled linen, their clothing, which could actually shed some of the virus on it as well.
1: Let me ask you this, because I, I read something in the AP earlier today about uh, how people who may have had smallpox, not I don't think many in this country, but who would have been vaccinated for a smallpox as children would not probably need to be vaccinated. Is that the case?
5: We don't know. I mean, the last case of smallpox was, uh, I think, 1976 in Somalia. And so it goes back a long time ago that people got smallpox vaccine. There is a theoretical thought that that vaccination, which at the time was deemed to be repeatable every 10 years, carries some evidence of immunity. But it hasn't been actually tested, so we really don't know. There are similar viruses, and there's certainly some degree of protection if someone were to get smallpox vaccine today. But over 30, 40 years, it's, it's hard to know without data.
2: So an emergency declaration, what does that mean? Well, it means money primarily. So how is this money best deployed now that the state and county have both taken action? Would it be best if they coordinated, or how should this play out?
5: Well, it's, it's money, and it's also showing the world that we're taking it seriously. Um, the, it's mostly a question of resources. Uh, how do you stop the spread of it? How do you vaccinate? Who do you basically single out and prioritize to get the vaccine? Um, how do you prevent it from getting into a rodent population by, by pulling in veterinary resources? And all of these things kind of enter into the fray when more money is available. Okay, uh,
1: but in your in your view, are we better off now at this phase of this particular uh, uh, disease than we were, say, at a similar phase with the coronavirus? I mean, how are we in terms of contact tracing and testing, and uh, are there any therapeutics?
5: Well, we're a little ahead. I mean, we we have a readily available vaccine. Of course, it's in short supply, but we do have a vaccine. We do have contact tracing in place. We know a lot more about this virus than we knew about COVID-19. Um, it goes back decades and decades of research that have been done in parts of Africa on this understanding this virus. So we're we're ahead a little bit in terms of that. The testing is still behind. We we do have a test, but it's cumbersome. It has to be validated. It it's not as not as easy to do. But we certainly are in a better position than we were at the beginning of. COVID-19.
2: This is a serious disease, and it's disproportionately affecting a marginalized community. But at the same time, it's really not killing many, many people. So do you think because of that, people aren't going to take it quite as seriously as this horrible disease, COVID, that we've been living with for two and a half years?
5: Well, you're, you could mention the same thing about COVID now. COVID is still killing some people, you know, and most people don't take it seriously anymore. Yeah, I mean, when, when you don't get affected in a, in a very severe way, you take it less seriously. And especially if you're in a very marginalized population. Sure, there's spillover into kids and into pregnant women, but it's primarily a very specific class of people that gets infected. And they're going to be the ones that are going to be most concerning about it.
1: The vaccines, uh, what's the side effect profile of these vaccines for people who are interested in getting them?
5: Well, there's two vaccines one of them is not available the other one which is an injectable vaccine seems to have an excellent side effect profile it doesn't seem to be any problems the one that's not in great supply seems to have more complications but this vaccine is a very safe and effective vaccine from everything i've read
2: thank you. dr peter katona clinical professor of medicine and infectious diseases at ucla's gevin school of medicine doctor thank you
1: well another thing you can blame inflation for. Credit card debt. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York says Americans put an extra forty-six billion dollars on their cards. That was just in the second quarter of this year. Debt grew five and a half
2: percent from the first
1: to second quarter, and
2: thirteen percent year over year, marking the sharpest increase in twenty years. Brett Wilsey is president of Wilsey Asset Management. He's a business and financial strategist. And Brett, looks like the obvious answer here would be inflation. People are simply spending more. At the same time, these higher prices don't really seem to be curtailing their habits because a, they just you know put it on a credit card.
6: Uh, and that is partly true. And I was trying to dissect things and see well what else is really going on here. Because yes, we have inflation. Yes, things are costing more, but there's some other things going on as well. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I think I get two or three solicitations a day. It seems like for credit card companies. There's a heavy marketing thing from banks and and financial companies for credit cards. So they are trying to get more people to do that. They're succeeding on that side. The other thing, too, is that we have to remember that the final quarter of 2019, credit card debt was higher at $930 billion. Now, go back to 2019 because that was a, another good period for the economy. But the other thing, too, that's going on is a couple things. Is One, people have jobs. Uh, the JOLTS report came out today, which is Job Opening Labor Turnover Survey, million jobs still opening. So people feel confident they're not going to lose their job, so they're okay maybe extending a little more debt because they feel next week we'll get a paycheck and they can pay that. Um, Also, too, going back to 2019, uh, consumers now have more than $2 trillion in their savings, so that makes them feel a little bit better. And things are starting to go down, don't get me wrong, but we're still not that bad. And the other thing, too, we know about traveling, how traveling exploded last quarter. Now, when I go into the airport, I've never seen anybody pay cash. We always use our credit cards, and it's usually done on pies. So for hotels and for airlines, that's been booming. Most of that's done on credit cards. So there are reasons for it. So I don't get too excited, but as a money manager, we do look, saying, is this a problem? A big problem or a potential problem? I'll put it more on the side of potential problems, but not a big problem yet. Well, you know,
1: I, I think you you may be on to something about something else going on. Uh, you know, with the Federal Reserve having raised uh, their rates, one would expect to have higher interest rates on bank credit cards. And I know, and I don't know about you, uh, Brent, but I've gotten two offers from banks that I deal with in just the past two weeks, lowering, lowering. My interest rates uh, as an enticement to put more on my credit cards, which is a trap, of course, because somewhere down the road, they're going to probably raise those rates.
6: You know, and that very well could happen, but I would say take advantage of it as long as you're prudent with your credit cards, because I always tell people, if you don't have a balance on credit cards, make the top rate of pay those off every month. I really encourage people to use the cash reward cards. And I don't think they're giving you that on top of it. But this is the time to use the cash reward cards because, like, I use Wells Fargo. They give me 2% cash back. Well, that's money you can use next year if you want to to pay off the cards or do something else with it. Don't use those reward cards for airline miles or anything else. That's a waste uh, at this point in time. But there's things you can do to be prudent about how you're doing that. And if you have balances, and you're talking about these other ones that can be a lower balance, by all means, go to that lower balance credit card to get it paid off quicker.
2: Yeah, how bad could it get this rude awakening as people rack up this credit card debt, and then if a recession comes, people are going to lose jobs, and we've got this big debt bomb. I mean, what could that mean for society at large?
6: Well, that would be a problem, and hopefully that does not happen. I've talked many times before in the past. I mean, again, we have a lot of open jobs. We have less – our workforce is smaller now because of the fact that we're not having as many babies as we've had 50 years ago. People are retiring now. Our workforce is actually smaller, so we may not have the problem like we had back in the 70s to where there's a lot more people than jobs available. Um, So we may not see a major recession. I do believe this will be more of a mild recession. You may not even know it, except that we hear about it, we see it, and it could also be kind of like self-imposing because, well, maybe I should pull back because we're supposed to be in recession. Even though I have a job and I have savings, I better pull back. So we could almost create this on our own by not spending when, when we can be spending. So we'll, we'll see how it goes, but I just don't see a major recession uh, coming around. And I think by the end of the, the year here, we'll see a whole different story. You
1: know, you, you mentioned mean, you mentioned something else in passing that might explain why we're seeing an increase in credit card debt. You were mentioning, like, when you go to the airport, people, you know, people don't pay with cash anymore. They buy a, a candy bar. They put it on their, on their credit card. Do we know, though, from the figures— How long people carry that debt for, because maybe they're just putting it on their card, you know, for convenience purposes, and then they pay it off at the end of the month.
6: Uh, Those numbers, I've seen them before in the past. I've not seen them recently. I do know that people are paying... Pretty much on time, delinquencies are are not a problem at all, On, on uh, and even we, we own AT&T in the portfolio. AT&T said, yes, people are on a day or two behind, but no one's way behind on their payments or on their credit card payments. So at this point, we're still doing well. And a lot of those people, you're right, like myself, I pay it off every single month, which I encourage people to do, because I get free money from the bank, again, at 2%. Plus, I pay no interest. It's, it's the best thing to do. So I've not seen those numbers. So I, I wish I could find them. If I did, I would definitely share them with you guys.
2: And so in summary, you want those cash back cards because any other perk nowadays, especially the airline miles, and anything like that, cash is king.
6: Cash is king, especially now. If you've got to slow down the economy, you want cash.
2: <laughs> All right. That is uh, Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management, a business and financial strategist. Brent, thank you.
1: This is KNX In-Depth, Brian Ping in for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman.
2: If a proposed merger between two publishing giants takes place, the entire book industry could change. Penguin Random House and rival Simon & Schuster are looking to
1: become one. And that's not sitting well with the federal government, so there is an antitrust trial going on. But what does Stephen King have to do with all of this? Jane Friedman is a writer, writing consultant, and reports in the book publishing industry. Jane, thanks for being with us. What does Stephen King have to do with this?
7: Well, the government's case centers the question of why authors specifically would be harmed by the acquisition, not consumers. So they brought in Mr. King uh, to talk to that.
2: Well, really, it's because, uh, you know, the authors don't have as many uh, suitors to bid for their services. And, uh, you know, we are talking about, if not a monopoly, something pretty close to it. That's never good for the people who are getting paid.
7: Well, the government's case isn't really talking about any or all authors they're focusing pretty much solely on authors of anticipated top-selling books and that's the exact phrase that they use so they're arguing that advances for those books are going to decline if this acquisition happens so the penguin random house and simon and schuster are two of the big five and so indeed if they merge they would represent An enormous publisher that dwarfs the others. But the case still is just really looking at those top selling books. We're talking about really maybe 2% of all commercially published books, at least as the case looks at the matter. How concerned
1: are writers about this proposed merger?
7: Uh, They are pretty unhappy about the merger. They've been unhappy about these mergers uh, going back to the 1980s and 90s when all of this consolidation started. So literary agents don't like it. Authors don't like it because they feel like it reduces competition.
2: So why should we, the readers, uh, care? Is it because writers would have less incentive to put out quality content or is there more to it?
7: Well, that's the argument the government is making that if this merger happens, it's going to reduce advances. It's going to reduce authors' ability to make a living on their work and thus reduce the richness of literary culture. But you know, there's an argument to be made which the defense will make, which is Penguin Random House,, uh, that there is a flourishing literary culture. There are literally thousands of publishers out there, and, they are also a very meaningful part of how authors get published. And, you know, the case doesn't even touch all of the digital forms of publishing out there, self-publishing, all of that really just gets dismissed in this case.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the publishing world has changed dramatically because of some of the things you just mentioned. I mean, you do have a lot of independent publishers, right? Smaller mm-hmm. houses, digital platforms. But is the issue, as it always ends up being, money? Because a lot of those places just don't pay top dollars.
7: Well, it's true that the smaller houses usually don't have the financial wherewithal to compete against the big 5. Nevertheless, they still are able to peel off a good number of very successful authors because they're more flexible in the terms that they offer and there's no and self-publishing. We've seen a lot of authors succeed in that realm and then cross over into traditional and actually play both sides of the field. So, for instance, Colleen Hoover, who is one of the most successful authors today, Uh, Started off self-publishing. You've got Brandon Sanderson, who publishes with the Big Five, but also just had the most successful Kickstarter in history to self-publish some of his books. So I think it's you know it's a little disingenuous disingenuous for the government to say I think that the literary culture is going to decline when you have so many paths uh, to success today.
2: So Big Five would become Big Four. Do you foresee if this goes through, some of the other publishers trying to get together?
7: Oh, that's definitely already been happening. Uh, Harper Collins acquired uh, another major publisher, Houghton Mifflin, uh, within the past year. or So, N- consolidation is likely to continue. Although we're starting to reach the point at which you know there's not much left to acquire. Um, so, yeah, I was, was we'll going to say,
1: I mean, do we end up eventually with just one giant publisher?
7: <laughs> kind of like what, what is the music business now down to the big three? So yeah, I can vary. Right? very easily imagine it dwindling to those big uh, a big two or a big three but still you know even though I advocate for authors and I'm, you know and I uh, am a writer myself I don't know that what the big five does is as important as this case makes it out makes them out to be it's they tend to get all of the attention because they have the most money and they get the most media but there's so much to the literary culture that exists outside the big five. And I, and you know, the, the truth is most authors don't earn a living off their writing, no matter who publishes. So, so is is Stephen King though,
1: uh, on the wrong side of history on this then?
7: (laughs) Well, he, you have to remember that Stephen King came into publishing a very long time ago now, and he, you know, I'm not. How would he enter the business today? That, that,
1: that is one of the most diplomatic ways of someone saying that <laughs> someone's old. <laughs> he came into publishing a very long time ago.
7: <laughs> well, he has, I would say, probably very special treatment from his publisher, Scribner. Um, you know, he hasn't had to fight to get the best deal for a long time. But for the future Stephen Kings who are out there and getting their first uh, books published, there are lots of ways that that can happen, and I don't think that the merger of these two big companies will will affect that. It it could shave a, maybe a little off their advance, um, but even then, I'm not I'm not entirely confident that advances are going to drop in in a big way for these top selling books.
2: That's Jane Friedman, writer, a writing consultant, and she reports on the book publishing industry. Jane, thanks for joining us.
1: So, you come home. It's late at night, long day at work, and you've all had that experience, and you're you're tired, and you, you're hungry, and you want to have a nice big meal, but you don't have time to kind of make a nice big meal, right? So what do you do? Well, there in the corner is the microwave, and in the other corner is the refrigerator and the freezer. You open it up, you take out maybe a frozen pizza, some other frozen thing, pop it in the microwave, and voila, you got dinner. Well, that might be convenient, but it could also hurt not
2: only your waistline, but your brain. A new study out of Brazil finds eating ultra-processed foods for more than 20% of your daily caloric intake every day could lead to cognitive decline. Dr. Fatima Stanford is an obesity medicine doctor at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Uh, doctor, thanks for joining us. So we all know that uh, it's, it's not uh, the ultra-processed foods that is great for our heart health or our waistlines, but how does this affect the brain?
8: Absolutely. First of all, thanks so much for having me. I think what we have to recognize is that we've had multiple studies before this most recent study that have talked about the types of diets or, you know, that really improve cognitive function, right? That's improves our brain health. So things like the Mediterranean diet or the DASH diet, which specifically focuses on, um, you know, reducing sodium intake. And so it's really no surprise that we see here what we've kind of known all along is that, you know, in order to um, have the best cognitive function, um, we need to have ideal nutrients, which we don't get from ultra-processed foods. Okay, but it's one thing to
1: not have the best nutrients and maximize uh, perhaps your, I guess, I don't know, brain potential. It's another thing to actually cause harm. Does this food actually harm you? Harm your brain?
8: Well, I would say that it. it yeah. Well, let's let's just go with yes. I'm not going to usually answer. I don't usually answer yes or no, but I'm going to say yes. What we do know is that when we're looking at the the vitamins and nutrients that are needed for optimal brain health, we need certain key things. For example, we need omega three fatty acids. These are found usually. And fish, fish oil, um, particularly fatty fishes like Arctic char, salmon, et cetera. We need, um, you know, things like vitamin E. Vitamin E is um, crucial. We're not getting that from ultra processed foods. A lot of the B vitamins, particularly vitamin B12, which is really um, important for our mental health. And so when we're looking at these things, particularly if you're looking at that percentage of the diet, you know, that needs to include these um, vitamins, they need to be relatively high to protect our mental health what we do know is that all of us will age. That is something that none of us, know no matter how great we think we are, we can't stop the aging process. But in order to delay um, the cognitive decline that comes with aging, we have to optimize our diet because our brain feeds off of our diet.
2: So we mentioned the frozen pizza example of these ultra-processed foods. I'm sure that a lot of frozen meals do as well. And I'm sure a lot of fast food does. What are some foods that we might not think of as being ultra processed but do fall in this category?
8: Well, I'm, I'm just going to say, just I just want to define what ultra processed is because those those that are listening may not understand that. So, you know, anything that it's, that's, you know, modified from its um, form and nature is processed. So anytime you refrigerate something or freeze something or cook something or bake something, that's processed. When we get into ultra-processed, right, we're going several steps beyond that. So when you use that frozen pizza example, that's something that you might consider to be ultra-processed. Let's look at something like cured meats. Those things are processed, you know, numerous times before. Um, you would consume it. So that would be something that would be considered ultra processed. Um, you know, French fries, you know, the all time favorite things that a lot of people really enjoy eating, um, unless you're, you know, getting that potato out of the refrigerator um, or out of the grocery store, you know, slicing it, dicing it. And of course, then putting it in the oven, then you're going to probably have more ultra processed fries. So I think these are things that people think of. Um, Of course, a lot of our baked goods, right? Um, Cakes, cookies, pies, et cetera. Um, um typically fall within that ultra-processed category. So hopefully that gives people an understanding of what we're looking at when we're looking at ultra-processed food versus processed food, which includes, I told you, anything you modify from its um form and when we do things like refrigerate, boil, bake, et cetera.
1: I'm so sorry you mentioned French fries.
8: Oh, I know, right? <laughs> why they never man- fall in why the did, good yeah, category. Yeah, why did you mention French oh, but- I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) But 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 I'm but
1: I'm guessing uh, from time to time you've probably indulged in some of this stuff. How do you stop from feeling guilty? How do other people stop from feeling guilty?
8: So I think that, you know, and this is what I say with my patients, and I think that if any of them are listening, they would agree with this. You know, my thing is not an all or nothing approach. I think that if you want french fries you know, you can have French fries, but don't make it a daily thing. Make it maybe a once a week or once every other week type of situation. Um, And when you do it in that way, you don't completely deprive yourself of things that are highly palatable, right? Things that we enjoy, that taste good. Um, But we also are thinking, hey, my brain, for the most part, needs things that are healthier than French fries. And so um that's the way I think to do it. Like, so
1: like onion rings? It. <laughs> no
2: not I, i've I've heard a dessert rule where no matter what kind of diet you're on, you can have well, I mean stuff that you're not allergic to a thing like that. Yeah. you can have three bites of anything, and you're fine. Do you agree? Three well, bites I mean, and you see, stop. Yeah,
8: You know, I think, I think that's in moderation, right? Like three bites. Depends on how big those bites are, though, right? Right. Giant, the biggest spoon in your cabinet. And... Three, three forkfuls. Are we talking about three? Bowls? Yeah, just like if you're three to salad.
2: nibble yeah. off somebody's dessert at a restaurant, yeah. like three bites. A yeah, menu. no,
8: I think that's fine. I mean, I think that that's a really good, um, you know, rule of thumb. If, if we're thinking about those bites as actual bites. Um, and like I said, that's, that really is a bit more realistic, right? Like an all or nothing approach typically leads us to, crave those things that are off limits. Right. So if I say no French fries ever, then all of a sudden you want French fries all the time. Right. Because I've told you that they're off limits. So, you know, having this this rule of thumb of having small amounts of things that may be more enjoyable, but not as great for your body, I think is a good way to go.
2: Well, there are three of us. Let's all split
1: a uh, slice of cheesecake of course
8: yeah, <laughs> I think, yeah you could do that right so, yeah. so you wouldn't have to worry so much yeah.
1: I, th- I think your quote of the day is if you want french fries have french fries <laughs> there,
2: yeah. that's what you want to say if
8: well, you i would say it. if you have french fries have french fries in moderation
2: dr fatima stanford obesity medicine doctor at mass general also at harvard medical school doctor thank you so much
1: just have one french fry that's it just one you could probably have maybe i want fries now See, yeah,
2: it's Yeah, yeah, it's good for the soul. What was your thing? That evens three, it out. Three bite, three, rule. three bite rule.
1: So you can have like one French fry, one onion ring, and and one little tiny bit of frozen pizza, and you're fine. I'm putting it in the order now. There you go. And your brain, your brain <laughs> will will be fine.
2: <laughs> well, thank you. Today, down the road, I don't know. This has been KX in depth.